Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. The number of preemies receiving probiotics in the United States and Canada is increasing steadily, but skeptics say there is potential for harm in this vulnerable population. My next guest says, if done correctly, dietary supplements, including probiotics, can be used safely in these vulnerable populations. Joining me now is Dr. Greg Layer, the Senior Director of Scientific Affairs at Christian Hansen. Welcome to the NutriCast, Greg. Thank you so much. So before we get into all of this, what is your background? I know you've been working in in the probiotics field for, for many years now. My academic background is in food microbiology and toxicology. And ironically, during my graduate school days, I studied those bacteria that would harm you or kill you potentially, things like botulism and salmonella, fun stuff like that. (laughs) And my first job after graduate school was actually in the probiotic area. And this was in the mid-1990s, if we can go back that far, when probiotics were definitely not a household name. And the science was really young and emerging. There was only a couple of global players that were even looking at this. And these would be the large food companies like a Danone or a Nestle. And then over the course of now until then, you know, I've held a variety of positions in several probiotic champions, really global leaders. I've been an entrepreneur in the probiotic industry as well. When you look back at publications in the clinical sciences using probiotics, When I started in the industry, there was maybe one a year. And now it's, I'll just say one a day. You know, it's very hard to keep Mm -hmm. up with the the evolution of the science, but it sure has made it a a fun and dynamic industry and science to be part of. It's so fascinating to take a look back and see how far we've come. Like you mentioned in the 90s, I would say even, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of people didn't know what probiotics are. I would completely agree with you. You know, I think the household name recognition of probiotics is still a little muddied. I think people may have been exposed to the term. There's been, you know, a fair amount of advertisements and certainly consumer interest is driving the growth of the category, not only in the retail stores, but an online presence. And there's just a lot of educational paraphernalia out there that's helping people understand the term, although I still think there's a fair amount of confusion as to what probiotics are and what they can and cannot do, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, as far as consumers go, there's definitely a lot of confusion still, but then you look at the medical field. I mean, there's still a lot of conflicting views there, whether probiotics should be used in say vulnerable populations. Yeah. Agreed. And even whether probiotics have a benefit in non-vulnerable populations, you know, the concept of nutritional intervention or probiotic intervention on preventing disease and maintaining health is probably not a common concept that's taught in traditional medical schools. And so certain parts of the medical practitioner community are on board with probiotics. They've seen the clinical data being generated and uh, the safety record that's being generated, and they're on board with promoting it for certain applications with their patients. Traditional medical doctors, I think, have been more slow to come on board. And maybe in some cases, rightly so, right? They're, they're very geared towards risk-benefit, more pharmaceutical approach to interventions with their subjects. And probiotics being a natural product, being you know a naturally occurring bacterium in most cases, has just not been 
taught, I would say, in traditional medical schools. Yeah. And let's just get something straight. Okay. So they're considered a, a dietary supplement. So are probiotics regulated? Yeah. Th- there's actually a couple of questions embedded in your question. One is they're considered a dietary supplement. Probiotics in the United States, let's just speak about the United States. Probiotics could be sold as a drug. They can be sold as a food and in a subcategory of food lies dietary supplements. So it really depends on the intended use. For example, we could we could study and go down the investigational new drug route and create a drug that is containing the probiotics. So it's all about the intended use. And traditionally, probiotics have been sold predominantly in foods and in dietary supplements. So more in the food space, whereby it's very limited in terms of what we can say about probiotics in terms of health benefits. We can't treat, cure, mitigate diseases, for example, on a product label, although they might be studied in those areas. So the concept of probiotics then not being regulated is false. Probiotics are regulated as a dietary supplement ingredient would be regulated. There is certain federal standards that we need to meet as a manufacturer. There's federal guidelines that are specific to dietary supplements in terms of how they are manufactured called good manufacturing practices, which are slightly different from food and and slightly different from pharmaceuticals, but they, they certainly are regulated. Despite being labeled dietary supplements, there are so many clinical trials evaluating probiotics for safety and efficacy for you know or prevention or treatment of disease, obviously more aligned with, with drug uses, yet probiotic products are supported by data and, and not marketed in the U.S. as drugs. So help me make sense of this. Why do you think that's so? And, and do you think that they should stay as dietary supplements? That's a really good question. And I, you know, listen to the questions. There are there are certain probiotics that are being that are, that are kind of marching along that developmental pipeline towards drugs. We can see when you can monitor its public information, you can monitor what types of clinical studies are happening. And you can see that certain people are going down more of a drug application route, you know, pending the results of the clinical study. So you might ask, why don't we see more probiotics being marketed and developed as drugs? I mean, obviously the cost to entry is quite high for drug development processes. And most of the probiotic manufacturers come from more of a food background. And that's where probiotics have gotten their their start. And if you go back centuries and centuries ago with very smart people realizing that fermented foods are beneficial for health and then realizing, well, what makes the fermented food is really microbes that are fermenting components of that food stuff. You know, we're going back before bacteria were really understood. Um, but there was an understanding that fermented foods could potentially lead to longevity and just other health benefits. So it started in this food landscape. And I think it's important to always recognize that, that, you know, let food be thy medicine. And that's where probiotics have kind of gotten their start. And so companies that are doing things the right way that are doing, you know, randomized, double blind, placebo controlled trials, just haven't traditionally gone down the drug scape because it's a nutrition, it's a nutritional source. It's not really been considered a a pharmaceutical, but it could be, you know, there's certain pharmaceutical applications where probiotics, for example, necrotizing enterocolitis and premature infants, as we're talking about today, could be an area where there could be a drug development for a probiotic. Having said that, 
all the studies done in neck thus far in premature infants and prevention of developing necrotizing enterocolitis have been done in products made to dietary supplement standards. So I think the hesitancy of using probiotics for vulnerable populations needs further discussion, which we'll get into in our discussion today. Mm-hmm. And so we keep saying probiotics and it's such a broad term. Are there specific strains that, that have the science to back all this up? Yeah. And people tend to use probiotics in a more generic way. And the hardcore probiotic scientists or the people that have grew up in this field tend to cringe a little bit because if you look at a working definition of a probiotic, it's really a live microbial supplement that has a benefit on human health. And so the key phrase in there, there's a few of them, but one that I'll focus on is it has a benefit or it has some type of a health benefit on the host, whether it's a, a human, an animal, a plant, whatever. We're talking humans today. And so you really should have that documentation that it has some type of a clinical and appreciable benefit on the subject that's taking the strain. And there are a number of probiotic strains in the marketplace that have been studied for literally decades and have hundreds of clinical publications in a, in a wide variety of areas. Some areas more documented than others, and some areas we would consider more emerging areas. But there certainly are strains of probiotics that have an extensive documentation history. And that's proven, I mean, even if you look at something called a meta-analysis where people look at all the data and try to come up with a a broad comparison and conclusion. And this is hard to do with probiotics because we would argue strains can matter, dosing can matter, how the product is delivered can matter, but they'll group all this together and come up with a conclusion as to whether it's been beneficial or not. And there certainly have been meta-analyses, particularly in gastrointestinal wellness areas like antibiotic-associated diarrhea, for example, some cases of irritable bowel syndrome, and just other digestive maladies where probiotics have a long history of success and, and successful clinical work. And so what do you think healthcare practitioners need to know? Do they just need to know more about specific strains and, and not just grouping all this together? Because I think that's a big reason why there's so many conflicting views on this. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, I think when you group everything together, there's going to be some strains that have been tested appropriately that have elegant and convincing clinical data and some strains won't. And so you group it together and then there's a confusion. Probiotics don't do anything or or probiotics are very effective. And I think you really need to get down to which probiotic or combination of probiotics are we talking about at what dose where has it been studied, et cetera. And that puts the onus on the consumer or in the case of pharmacies or hospitals, whoever is making that purchasing decision to put it on a formulary in a hospital. And as we speak about premature infants or infants, we're not talking about mom and pop that are going down to the store to buy this for their premature infant because it's he or she's in the hospital, right? So it's mm-hmm. really incumbent upon the formularies in the hospitals to make wise purchasing decisions based on data. I wrote a response in a blog recently. There was a a very nice paper summarizing the effects of probiotics in NEC, so NEC, necrotizing enterocolitis. And this is something that affects a certain percentage of premature infants, and it can be fatal. So it's this very serious illness if if it develops in in the NICU. 
probiotics, multiple studies have shown some benefits on reducing the incidence, the severity, the duration of that illness. And as I mentioned earlier, all of those studies have been done with probiotics that have been manufactured at a dietary supplement grade level. The conclusion of this paper that led to the blog was that unless it's a pharmaceutical, we really need to be more careful about this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And I agree and disagree. So the disagreement comes in, in the fact that th there are certain brands and certain companies, our company certainly is a leader there that takes great care in producing probiotic finished products dedicated to premature infants and or infants. And we can get into what makes a difference there. But the challenge is there's no seal. There's nothing that somebody can look for to say, okay, this was made to the standards we're expecting. And that's where I think the confusion comes in. It's just the education on which particular brands you'd be comfortable with and what you can do as a clinician, a formulary specialist, a pharmacist to identify those brands you'd feel comfortable bringing in for this mm -hmm. vulnerable population. Yeah. And you're referring to that paper um, from the American Academy of Pediatrics. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So they, they kind of, you know, came off as somewhat, you know, opponents of probiotics. I have their quote right here. Uh, they said, clinicians must be aware of the lack of regulatory standards for commercially available probiotic preparations manufactured as dietary supplements and the potential for contamination with pathogenic species. So, yeah, I mean, they definitely don't come off as pro probiotic here. Um, yeah. And, you know, if, if you get into the details of how dietary supplements are made and how the FDA does regulate that space, the FDA doesn't tell you what tests to run. You need to make a risk assessment and apply appropriate testing consistent with the intended use of, of that product. And so there are some industry standards for standard dietary supplements. What, and we're talking really of microbial contaminants. That's, that's the concern, right? You're making a finished product. The concern is not, and this is an important distinction, the concern hasn't been with the probiotic strain itself. Let's use Bifidobacterium lactis BB12 as an example. That strain's been in the marketplace for 20 plus years. It has a very robust safety record in a variety of age categories. So the concern's not of the probiotic generally, it's of the manufacturing process and the possibility of introducing other contaminants while the powder is put into a sachet and the sachet is put in a carton and or prior to that, the powder is being blended, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that's the concern. And because dietary supplements aren't regulated as pharmaceuticals, the author of that paper expressed their concern. And my position, and as well as another co-author of our blog, is that that's, that's not true. There's very safe products that have been on the market that follow very rigorous manufacturing specifications. It's almost pharma light, so to speak. But that information is hard. So in defense of the author of the American Academy of Pediatrics paper, they're not aware of it. And that's the challenge, right? How do you get that information to the uh, clinicians and the, and the purchasing people in these hospital formularies? Yeah. I mean, it's just so hard to sometimes just let them know they're not regulated as pharmaceuticals, but they are regulated. It's just- They're regulated and there's nothing preventing a hospital purchaser to request 
what specifications is this product made to? And customers of the products that we manufacture to a premature infant grade would be very happy to see the stringency that's that's put into this product. And it would give them a great sense of confidence that this is extremely safe for this vulnerable, we would consider a vulnerable population. Mm-hmm. And so is there a role there for pharmacies in all of this? You know, I'm not an expert into how these purchasing decisions gets made and something gets put on a hospital formula, but somewhere in that process, there should be the possibility for either obtaining a third-party verification or obtaining a certificate of analysis of that particular product. And reputable manufacturers would be happy to show that to a hospital formulary to give them confidence that these are the specifications that this finished product has been tested to. If they want to know, these are the additional steps that we take that's specific for this premature infant group. So maybe they just need to ask, but um, we would certainly be happy to do some educating there. And our customers that are marketing products intended for this age population, I'm sure would be happy to share that information to lend some credibility and confidence. Definitely. And and so how does Chris Hansen approach products that are aimed at infants and these preterm infants and in some of these vulnerable populations? Yeah. So we have multiple categories and these are all internal categories of specifications, for example. So we have our traditional dietary supplement category, which if you walk through any of our facilities, you'd be extremely impressed with the cleanliness and the care that we take in it. But then we go a step further for infants. And because we are basic in manufacturing the actual strain. And by that, I mean, we actually ferment the culture and make the actual probiotic and then go all the way downstream into the finished product. We start with what is the strain grown on and we make sure that the ingredients in the fermenter are compatible with infant formula standards around the world. We know we're not making infant formula, but there are international guidelines established not only by some EU commissions, but also by Codex. And so we make sure that the ingredients, there's no incompatibility in the ingredients. We make sure that the methods that we're using for testing all along the value chain from raw ingredient in the fermenter to the probiotic itself, to everything it's blended with and packaged into, that the methods that we're using have been validated to practically pharmaceutical standards. We make sure that the environment that the material is made in especially when it's exposed to the environment, like in a dry blending step, if you can imagine that the room has been cleaned and sanitized, that the air quality meets certain premature infant specifications that we ourselves have defined. And so we add lots of layers of additional testing, validation, preparation when we make these types of products, just because We also consider the safety of the products to be paramount in what we do. And we would consider that a premature infant would be considered vulnerable to some unintended contaminants that could make their way into the product. It even gets down to the number of times that we're testing. It becomes maybe sometimes a little frustrating internally with the number of tests that we do, but it is tested backwards, forwards, upsides, upwards, and downwards. I mean, it's, it's really quite impressive. So we do have internal standards that are different when we dedicate product manufacturing for that population. And so what's been the reaction? I mean, is there a, a demand for, for this product? 
Yeah, and our, since we are more of a business-to-business company, we would go to the hospitals through our customers, which are well-known international brands that would be marketing a product towards an infant or a premature infant made to these internal Christian Hansen standards. And so we would certainly support our customers, but our customers would be the ones that would be going straight into um and meeting with whoever is making purchasing decisions and talking about the clinical science behind it um, and all the quality specifications that is the foundation of the product. Mm -hmm. And speaking of clinical trials and things like that, are you guys working on any research right now, any new products or any things you can share with us? Yeah, we've got We've got research in all kinds of areas, probably too many to talk about in a lot of detail, but I'll just say it like this. We have activities from premature infant all the way to the senior population. And we feel like there's several categories in there, not only age, but time of life, for example, pregnancy and pregnant moms, where certain probiotics have a real benefit. And so we've got current clinical studies and everything from infant and premature infants to, um, and we're just publishing one now on colic in infants to weight management in adults to gut brain benefits, stress, anxiety type of work. And, and then we continue our leadership position in women health and vaginal health. So it's quite an exciting time to be in, in the industry. And it's, it's really exciting when you have the backing of the company that believes science is really going to continue to drive this. And, and we like to be at the forefront of that. Yeah, it certainly is an exciting time. And I'm just wondering what research or what area of probiotics is most exciting to you? I get really excited about the gut brain axis. So you might've heard that term, but there's some really interesting and emerging research on the ability. And it, we feel it's all based on a couple of things. One is changing microbiome and there's definitely an immune and an inflammation component in a lot of this, but the gut brain axis is really fascinating to me, how you can influence feelings of stress, anxiety, depression, even enhance sleep by something you orally consume that interacts with your immune system in your gut and bi-directionally communicates through the brain in some cases with very specific compounds that the bacteria can be producing in the gut. That area is fascinating to me. I know there's research even going to more severe areas like bipolar disorder and ADHD and Alzheimer's even, so and autism. So it, it's an area that's just exploding. I would consider it more emerging than anything. It doesn't certainly have the level of data that we have in digestive health or immune health, but that's clearly an area. And then, you know, you'd be remiss in talking about immune health in the midst of a pandemic, right? And there's mm -hmm. a lot of really interesting studies going on with immunology that I'm excited about as well. I mean, we could talk for days about all this stuff. I, I myself, am a big fan of the gut brain access, the second brain. I think that's such a fascinating field as well. So maybe we'll have to have you on for another episode to talk about that. Yeah, we'd be happy to. <laughs> Dr. Greg Layer, Senior Director of Scientific Affairs at Christian Hansen. Thank you so much for coming on the NutriCast today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Danielle. 
If you like what you just heard, you could subscribe to the NutraCast wherever you get your podcast. You can also head to NutraIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutra-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutraCast next week.